0: Let me invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. In high school, I played on my school soccer team. and my position on the team, it was a really important position. I was a full-time starter on the bench. Yeah, I, I had a very important job, you know, keeping that piece of wood warm for people, right? So I wasn't the best, but I did enjoy being a part of the team. You know, the one thing I didn't enjoy about playing soccer was all the running which looking back uh that may have been why I wasn't very good uh but every fall we started a few months before our season began we had something called conditioning and every day after school we'd meet our coach out on the track with our tennis shoes on our gym shorts and he would run us to death I mean we're talking sprints and miles and up and down the stadium steps it was it was terrible and no one liked it we just wanted to play soccer. But our coach would always remind us, he'd say, hey, we're conditioning for a purpose. We're playing the long game, okay? He wasn't just trying to torture us for fun, but he was preparing us for the spring when when our season kicked off. He he was preparing us to run up and down the field for 80 minutes. Well, some of us. And most importantly, he was preparing us to win, to, to have success. And as we ran and got in shape, we learned to endure by thinking about the end of the season. We knew that we would be grateful when we were in better shape than the other team. We would be so glad that we conditioned ourselves when we won and we tasted victory. We knew eventually the suffering would pay off. That mindset is also true in the Christian life. As followers of Jesus, we are playing the long game. We don't live for instant gratification or comfort or ease now. We're not about living the good life now. We're about living for Christ And in the New Testament, we see that living for Christ is often filled with pain and difficulty. And that's not to say we should mope around and complain. It's not to say we don't experience good things in life. Man, as Christians, we we have so much to be grateful for. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have joy. We're, We're the children of God. We have eternal life. But we also know we weren't promised this would be easy. In fact, we were promised the opposite. One of the major themes of the Bible is endurance. It's keep on keeping on. We, we know that any suffering we face in this life will be worth it, so we endure in light of the end. And that's what the book of Revelation is really all about. You've probably noticed as we've gone through this book that Revelation is a mix between yay and nay for Christians. There are some amazing truths that should cause us to sing for joy, like Jesus redeeming us and worshiping God around the throne. Then there are some other truths that we're like, oof, might cause a little grief. We've already seen in the end that Christians will be persecuted and and killed for their faith. and As we move closer to that time, we're going to face more and more hostility. So John is writing all throughout this letter to encourage believers in the church. He's writing to first century Christians that were facing these great challenges, living in a culture where they're being pressured to worship the emperor and to worship these other guys. And if they didn't do it, they had to either compromise their witness or they'd be killed. And that's why Jesus gave them and gave us this revelation. And this morning we're going to see a call to endure specifically in light of the end. Jesus is showing us, showing the church what's to come and reminding us that we are playing The long game. We fix our eyes on what's to come, and that's what keeps us going. So I want to invite you to look with me at Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap is come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. You can be seated. Look back with me as you sit down again at verse 12. It's rare that John tells us the purpose for his visions, but here he does. He says, this is a call for the endurance of the saints. So these visions he's seeing here are given for this reason. To help us press on. So, as we break down this vision, I want to give you three ways, three ways that we can endure in light of the end. Here's the first. Number one, endure in light of God's coming victory. The first part of this passage, in verses 6 through 13, we see three angels flying overhead, each with a message of declaration. The first angel says, Hey, fear God, worship Him, judgment's coming pretty straightforward second angel says hey babylon is fallen now what's he talking about there well it's important for us to know that the angel is not speaking of literal babylon that old city in the old testament that took jerusalem into captivity but rather babylon had become a symbol of godlessness in the world and here it's personified as a woman who is trying to seduce the world into adultery with her spiritual adultery So again, this is not a literal place, but this refers to the spirit of godlessness in the world that opposes the church and the things of God. We're going to see more about Babylon. But the angel says, hey, that system, that worldly system is fallen. And the third angel announces the fate of those who worship the beast and receive his mark. And the fate described for them is what we simply call hell. And let's be honest here. I don't know if you saw that as we read, but man, this language is difficult to read. Like these people, they're going to drink the wrath of God full strength. They're going to be tormented with fire and sulfur. And the worst part is this will never end. The smoke goes up forever and ever, and they never rest. I mean, thinking about hell, it should bother us. Like, we should never get to a point where we think about hell and we're comfortable with that. To be honest, I think hell is perhaps the most difficult thing to believe from the Bible. And so a lot of people don't. They don't believe it. They walk away from the faith altogether, or they try their best to soften the doctrine of hell and make it easier to accept. One of the biggest ways that people try and kind of soften this idea of hell is by claiming that this is all just symbolic. As as we've established week after week, revelation is full of symbols, so maybe hell is a symbol too. These people say things like, you know, this isn't literal fire and burning. Hell is just the the absence of God. Or it's not literally forever. It's just a temporary punishment. I mean, after all, God is merciful and and loving. He couldn't do this to people. But is that true? That's, That's the most important question. Is that true? Is hell just a symbol or is it something we should take literally? I don't have time to get into a whole debate here, but I do think this is important. So I'll simply say that, yes, I believe these descriptions of hell are to be taken literally. And the biggest reason I believe that is because Jesus described it in the same way. Believe it or not, no one talks about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. And he consistently explained it as a place of conscious, eternal torment. So, yes, hell is burning in fire, but it's also much worse than that. Because unlike the fire we experience here on earth, this fire never goes out. It doesn't stop burning. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 10:28 that the fire in hell won't just be physical pain in the body, but it will affect the soul. Hell will be much worse than simply being burned alive because this is a spiritual punishment. This is the fullness of the wrath of God on evil. And think about it this way. If these were just symbols, how would that make us feel better? Like, what could eternal fire be a symbol of? (laughs) Surely nothing good. So whether you want to take this literally or symbolically, there's just no denying that hell will be a place of unimaginable, never-ending torture. And I don't say that lightly. Thomas Watson, who was a famous Puritan author and pastor, he gave us this word picture as he wrote on this difficult passage. And I want you to try to picture this in your mind. It's, it's painful. He says, Oh eternity, if all the body of earth and sea were turned to sand, and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand. And a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill, but the tenth part of a grain of all that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away. Yet, if at the end of all that time the sinner might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But that word ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Again, this should disturb us. It should bother us. Hell is horrible. And if you wonder how a loving and good God could send people to hell, I want you to know you're not alone in asking that question. That's something that I've personally wrestled with as well. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to a message I preached a few weeks. It's called The Character of God's Judgment. We actually covered that very topic then. But but, but let's just ask this. What is the point? of us receiving this, this vivid picture of hell from the third angel. Remember, this comes directly after last week's chapter where we saw that everyone who doesn't receive the mark of the beast will be killed. Christians are going to be killed. And reading that may have caused some Christians to say, hey, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to die. Why don't we just get the mark? Is that a big deal? Let's just give in. We don't want to die. Come on. But right here, no, we see there is something much worse than death the fate of those who do get the mark of the beast will be much, much worse. So don't give up. The horror of hell should motivate us to persevere. It should motivate us to stand strong for Christ, and it should motivate us to make sure others don't go there either. Like, what could be a greater motivation to tell people about Jesus than understanding they will burn forever? If that don't do it, nothing will. So taking all three of these messages from the angels together, summing up this first section, here's what the angels are saying. They're saying, hey, judgment's here. The enemy has fallen, and the enemy will pay. This is a message of victory, that in the end, God and his people will stand alone. God is going to deal with sin and evil, and he will be glorified forever. And then right after that, John gives us verse 12, which we said this was what it's all about. He said, this is a call to endure. In light of God's coming victory, endure. We can know we're on the winning side. And in verse 13, this tells us this is true even in death. He says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Do you know there's a blessing to being dead? God's victory is so certain that even those who die are blessed. Even death can't separate us from God. I mean, what a comfort that is to us who've lost loved ones. For those who know Christ, dying is gain. And that's true for us because God's victory is certain. So we endure in light of that coming victory. That's the first way we endure in the light of the end. Here's the second we endure in light of God's coming vindication. The next section of this passage includes two visions of harvest you got a grain harvest and a grape harvest as we know the ancient world was an agricultural society so there's a lot of images in the Bible of harvesting and planting and and this specific vision picks up on an idea from the Old Testament that one day God would harvest the earth in judgment in other words God is allowing people to plant and to sow for a season. He's allowing sin and evil to have his day. He's allowing people a chance to repent. He's even allowing Christians to be killed for their faith. But one day, that season will come to an end. And it will be time for God to bring in the harvest. So these two visions, they're they're the same harvest of God's judgment of the earth, but with kind of two different views, two different emphases. The the first harvest is about God's coming vindication. Look with me at verse 14. We see a cloud with one like a son of man seated on it with a crown and a sickle. Here we have another Old Testament reference. This is from Daniel. You remember Daniel had the vision of the son of man coming on the clouds? Well, here he is. And this is what he's here to do. The angel tells him the time to reap has come for the earth is fully ripe. Think about a ripe piece of fruit. What does he mean that the earth is ripe? Well, this reminds us that God has an appointed time to judge the earth. God is not just sitting by passively, waiting until we tick him off bad enough. Like he's not like a parent who finally has to jump in when the kids are fighting. No, God has a plan. And he is acting according to that plan. This reminds us of what the martyrs under the altars were praying. Remember earlier in the book, they're praying to God. They said, God, how long? And God said, not yet. More Christians have to die. This is what is meant by the harvest is ripe. The time has come. The last Christian has been killed. It's time for God to avenge his people. That's not a very fuzzy idea, is it? (laughs) It's not something we think about. The idea that God's going to avenge and vindicate his people. In Psalm 94, it says that God is a God of vengeance. This is important. To avenge is different from revenge. Revenge is, is typically personal. It's about retaliating and getting even for what someone's done to you. But to avenge is to get justice for someone else. When I think about the word avenge, I think about, obviously, the avengers right? Like, I haven't read all the comic books, but I've, I've seen the movies, and, and the storyline's pretty simple. An evil villain is wreaking havoc on the world, and so there's a team of superheroes that are assembled to save the day and avenge the people, and think with me to the last uh, Avengers movie. It was, it was called Endgame, and uh, this is a spoiler alert, so if you haven't seen it by now, I mean, come on. It's a little late, but uh, you got Thanos, Who's the evil villain? He assembles all the affinity stones in his gauntlet. And he snaps his fingers and he kills half the world. It's bad. So the Avengers, they assemble with all their friends and they take out Thanos. And at the very end, we see this beautiful picture of what it means to avenge and to vindicate. And it's actually a really good picture of the gospel. Tony Stark Iron Man, he gets all the affinity stones for himself and he reverses what Thanos did. He actually brings back to life all the people who had died. And then he takes out Thanos and his evil army all while giving his own life to do so. Where have we seen that? Everyone's saved. The good guys win. The bad guys lose. That's the end. See, for God to avenge and to vindicate his people is to rescue his people by destroying their enemies. That means all who persecute and attack the church will pay. God will have the last word. And this helps us to endure because it means we don't have to whine and complain about being treated unfairly or even about being persecuted. Listen to me, guys, we're not victims. If you're a follower of Jesus, even if you die, you are never a victim. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And so we don't have to fight and avenge ourselves. That's why Jesus told Peter, remember the night he was being arrested, Peter pulled out the sword, he was ready to fight, and Jesus said, nope, put away your sword. That's why anyone who does violence in the name of Jesus, anyone who takes power, seizes power, seeks power in the name of Jesus, does not know Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, he says, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's God's job, not ours. Our job is to keep going, to keep obeying, to keep trusting in Jesus and let him take care of the rest. For one day, the Son of Man will reap his harvest. So we endure in light of God's coming vindication. Here's the last, number three, we endure in light of God's coming justice. The second harvest, as we said, is a harvest of grapes. This time an angel has the sickle. He harvests the earth. He gathers the ripe grapes up and throws them into a wine press. Do you all uh, know what a wine press is? I had to uh, do a little extra study here uh, because where I grew up in the Bible, Belt, we didn't believe in wine. Uh, they told us that Jesus turned water into welches. So uh, <laughs> I've never seen an actual wine press. Had to Google it. But apparently, in the ancient times, in order to make wine, they would take grapes and they'd put them in a large basin and people would actually walk on the grapes. Like Kind of gross, right? The feet and all that. But that was the thing. And as the grapes were trodden in the wine press, the juice would flow into a smaller basin. And in the Bible, the wine press became a symbol of God's wrath. And this right here is... Maybe the most gruesome version of it. Because this passage tells us that as the grapes are trodden in the wine press, blood flows out. And it reaches as high as a horse's bridle, about four feet, for 1,600 stadia, which for us would be about 184 miles. I mean, this is just brutal. There's no other way to explain it. This is an image that tells us when God reaps his judgment on the earth, it's going to be complete and total terror. This is the justice of God. And this is another hard image for us to understand. I mean, why would God do this? Why will God judge the earth? Again, we we talked about it a few weeks ago, but let me just reaffirm this because a lot of people struggle here. Whenever we see something in the Bible That seems to contradict something in our mind. Don't miss this. Listen. Whenever we see something in the Bible that seems to contradict something in our mind, we don't change the Bible to fit the picture in our mind. We change the picture in our mind to fit the Bible. If we honestly read God's word, we're going to come across ideas that seem to contradict or even offend us. And that is a good thing. Because that means God is speaking. He's teaching us about himself. And the area of God's justice is an area we need to grow in because we live in a culture where judging is always bad. Everyone is right. Everyone just needs to live out their own truth. Everyone just needs to do what makes them happy. But, man, that's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. And the truth is there is right and there is wrong. And God is the one who determines that, and he will be the one who judges all people, and he will punish evil. He must do that in order to be just and fair. God is a God of justice, and that is a good thing. In fact, the the idea of God's justice should help us to endure. Think about it like this. Let's imagine that we were all going to run a race together. went out to the field out here, a 100-yard dash. Who could do it? Me and you, John, after church. No, Um, but the snow, yeah, it's terrible. But just imagine with me, okay? And let's imagine that the winner of this race would not be determined by who crosses the finish line first or who's the fastest. No, the winner is actually going to be selected at random by the judges. And, you know, the race, there's no rules to the race. If you want to ride a bike or use a car, or if you want to start before the gun sounds, that's okay. It's just kind of whatever. Anything goes. Would that be a fair race? (laughs) I mean, if that were the case, how motivated would you be to train and run to win the race? I wouldn't be. I don't like to run, first off. But that's not fair. I mean, look, if life is like that race, then what's the point? There's no point to meaning. There's no point or meaning to living. If there's no fairness and justice, why should we endure? What's the, what's the point? Just do what you want. We're all going to get there somehow. But there is fairness and justice. And there is a meaning to life. We are not running for nothing. We are running a race with eternal significance. What we do in this life will impact eternity. God's justice will reign. The harvest is coming. The grapes will be tread and the blood will flow. So, what are you going to do in light of that? How are you going to live knowing that this is coming? Endure. Keep going. Endure. And light of the end but these truths are not the only thing that should drive us to endure yeah God will be victorious and he will vindicate and he will bring justice what about mercy and grace and love I mean how do those things fit with all this talk about hell and judgment well if we follow the path of God's justice and holiness it leads us square to the place of the cross where God's justice and love collide hey, l- let me explain this is huge as we saw in this passage in verse 10 those who rebel against God will drink the cup of God's wrath think about that cup what about us we I mean, aren't we sinners too where's our cup yeah we're sinners but we deserve to drink the cup of God's judgment so again where's my cup Well, this is amazing. Matthew 26, 42, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he's praying in the garden and he starts talking to God about a cup. Get this, listen to what he says. He says, My Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And on the cross, Jesus drank the cup. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment for your sin. Jesus drank the cup so you don't have to. Jesus drank the cup so you could come to God and receive mercy and forgiveness. Jesus drank the cup, and if you come to him, there isn't a drop left. It's empty. There, there's no more. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus drank the cup, and you don't have to do anything else. He drank the cup, so all you have to do is come to him in faith and be saved. That is our ultimate motivation. It's the gospel. It's knowing that Jesus drank the cup so we can keep going. Whatever life brings, whatever comes our way, whatever happens, we can make it because the cup is empty. It's done. It's finished, and we know how this story ends. So that means we can endure in light of the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.